Well, hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of the New Ground Life and Leadership Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Today, I am pleased to bring you a conversation that I had with Phil Fellows. Phil is married to Heather, who, by the way, is also going to be appearing on this podcast in a few weeks' time. He's married to Heather and he has three children. He previously trained as a commercial barrister before pursuing ordination in the Baptist Union. Currently, Phil is the pastor of Hersham Baptist Church, who've recently become part of New Ground. Welcome, friends. And he is also a doctoral student at Aberdeen University. And actually, it's his doctorate that forms the basis for our conversation today. You see, Phil is doing a PhD on the unity of the church and his insight about the spiritual unity of the church. The correct term for that is the pneumatological, from the word pneuma for spirit, the pneumatological unity of the church. And when we first heard about this, I was hooked and I thought, we have got to have a conversation about this on the podcast. In our conversation, Phil takes us into some pretty deep waters and draws out for us from the bottom of those waters some beautiful pearls of wisdom that I'm sure you are going to find truly fascinating and inspiring. So let's dive in together. There's lots of water metaphors splashing around at the moment. Let's dive in together. Over to my conversation with Phil Fellows. Enjoy. It is such a joy to be uh, on your podcast, Jez. I am an avid listener. You are the voice in my house that my wife pays most attention to, so hoping <laughs> I listen to this. Well, there you go. I mean, okay. Um, now, Phil, I think I think you and I first formally officially met uh, in Dale Barlow's garden one summer. We had a conversation about your doctorate, the PhD that you're doing. But um, one of the things that really piqued my interest when our early original conversation was about the idea of the unity of the church um and so i'd love to start off really just by talking about this because i mean there's lots of reasons for this obviously um people would look at the church globally and say it's far from united jesus prayed that they would be one we're clearly not one um at last count there's probably several thousand different protestant denominations and so yes where do you want to start with all of that i want to start by um challenging the last thing you said um because I think um, there is a, and, and this is to set. I'm going to, I'm going to answer the question you asked in a moment. But to set up, set this up, I think there's a widespread way of seeing the church with a capital C. Um, we in our branch of Christianity, um, so uh, charismatic new churches, which is where we both minister, um, which which sees there as being essentially lots of churches in the world as the first thing we would say about it. So I don't know how you introduce yourself when you, when you are introducing yourself to people, but I tend to introduce myself, but I'm a pastor of a church, right? That's actually quite a strange way of introducing yourself. If you think about it, because what it means is that I'm pastor of a different church from you. You're pastor of one church and I'm pastor of another church. And I think that's how we, talk and intuitively think about it but actually the church is one there is one church in the world and there's one church throughout history at least that's what st paul teaches right he he goes on about this for an awful lot of his letters if you have eyes to see it so i'm looking at 1 corinthians 12 at the moment 1 corinthians 12 verses uh, 12 to 14 
just as one body though one uh, so just as a body though one has many parts but all its many parts form one body so it is with christ but we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body whether jews or gentiles slave or free and we were all given the one spirit to drink even so the body is not made up of one part but many right so when we say when we say at the starting point that the church obviously isn't one there are a lot because there are divisions within the church that we see you know if you come to my village there's a roman catholic church there's an anglican church and there's us a kind of charismatic free church that's true but it's not the it's not the most important truth the most important truth is there's one body of christ in the world and 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 what i want to get at in the way that i'm thinking about the church and the work that i'm doing is what does that actually mean within what we believe about the church how does that work for us so if you were to go and ask a the uh, Roman Catholic, I've got a Roman Catholic charismatic friend who lives down the road from me and we talk about these types of things. They will talk about the church as being spiritually one, but also being one in the way that it relates to the Pope. Right. So if you, you could draw a, a, a kind of very, very long family tree as it went down from the Pope to all the cardinals, to all the bishops, to all the local priests and from the local priests to the local um, congregations. And that's the one church. They're all grouped together in um, a single organization. And uh, obviously for us, we don't have that, right? You know, you and I relate in some um, sense apostolically to uh, Dave Holden. Historically, New Frontiers would have related to Terry Virgo. But that, I don't think any of us would claim that that is the true church in the world, right? Everyone's relating to Terry. However high a view you might have of the charismatic renewal, if that is your view, you're basically a heretic. So none, none of us would, um, would say that, and Terry certainly would be horrified by it. So what do we mean by saying that there's one church? How do we read these, these verses from Paul? To put it another way, I live down the road from Kingston-upon-Thames, but I have friends I trained with who are from Kingston in Jamaica. What links a Baptist church, for example, with, in Kingston, Jamaica, with one in Kingston-upon-Thames? Why, why are they part of the same thing? Right? What, I mean, what is, it that, what is it that unites them? There's no organisational link between them. There's no relational link. So they're not going through an apostolic figure in the way that we would um, recognize from New Frontiers. They're not going through a, a bishopric in a way that the uh, Roman Catholics would recognize. But we say by faith that they are one, right? That everybody who was baptized in a church in Kingston upon Jamaica is baptized into Christ and they are our brothers and sisters. Now that's a theological claim. But it's also a felt reality. So, for example, when we used to live in East London, in Newham, we worked in, an, in a very poor area. This was before the London Olympics. And we went to a local um, black majority Baptist church. It was great. Really good. One of my favorite church experiences. And at that church, there was a lovely lady uh, called Noreen, who was a parish nurse. Uh, which is not something that we have in our tradition, really, but basically they're kind of community nurses. They're kind of like pastors, but looking after uh, nursing needs in the area. And uh, she also volunteered with uh, an international aid organisation. So she would go to Afghanistan or to Uganda or to she would fly all around the world to different places where there was a particular natural disaster or a war zone. Which she was a very brave woman. And she would get off the plane and her... Um, friend who wasn't a christian said to her noreen it's amazing because wherever you get off the plane you immediately walk into essentially a family so the church 
in whatever form would meet her off the plane. She would have friends who would eat with her, people who would care for her, a place to go at the weekends. She would be, it was as if she was walking into another city and, and coming across another branch of her family. And these were Christians coming from churches that had no link with her Baptist church in East London. But they were recognisably one. What Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12 isn't just a theological proposition, an, an idea that we have about the church, something we say is true but we don't experience. It is actually our experience. And I would suggest that everybody who's listening to this has had that experience at some point in their lives. So they've gone into a workplace or they've gone into a school or they've gone into a, a new situation and they've just intuitively recognised a brother or sister in Christ. There's something different. Now, that's really good because that means that the Bible's true, right? But it, it, but it poses some questions. How does that happen? Right? What does it mean to say that? Because in terms of our... Um, human institutions, there isn't really an explanation for that. There is an explanation for that kind of sense of love and loyalty that, that seems to go beyond ethnic boundaries, gender boundaries, national boundaries, even across history. And uh, yet there's something real there. And, and I think when we turn to the scriptures and look and see what's going on there, we find the answer is the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit is, is the one who um, Jesus baptizes us in the Holy Spirit. But it says, Paul says the Spirit baptizes us into one body uh, in 1 Corinthians 12. That it's the Spirit who leads the church. The Spirit fills the church. Every congregation who is uh, following Jesus in the world is listening to the Holy Spirit and is animated by the Holy Spirit. And this then has implications for how we do church and has implications for how we relate to one another. And that's what I'm exploring in my a PhD, is how does this relationship that we have with one another through the Holy Spirit, which is across the world, but also through time. Um, so I, I don't know, again, this might just be me because I'm a theological geek, but my, I really believe that there is something that happens when you're reading the work, for example, of another great Christian mind, even if there's someone who's from a completely different tradition to you and lived a long way away from you in a different time from you. Now, I've had this experience twice recently, by recently in the last couple of years, and my wife had it actually independently of me. When I was reading the work of John Wesley, there's just a resonance of somebody who's both as someone's perceived something beautiful and good about God that is ultimately true and it can move you to tears, but also something that echoes that I recognise him. I see him and I know him, even though I've obviously never met him. And I, I, I thought maybe this is just that I like Wesley, um, but it's qualitatively different, I think, from reading a secular author who you agree with. It's like they are speaking to a reality that they've seen that you see as well. I think a lot of people have this with C.S. Lewis. It's why he provokes such a, such a uh, affection and loyalty amongst readers, which goes way beyond the, I mean, his books are very good. They're very good books, but there's something that goes beyond that. There's a, there's a pride. There's a sense that he is, that he's family. And, and we recognize him and there's something in the way that he's acting and ministering what he's saying that, that speaks to a deeper truth inside us, a kind of echo, I think, of the way that you sometimes get when you read the Gospels. And 
I, I, I had a similar experience the other night. I was reading um, uh, a book, a collection of, again, this is um, embarrassing. Now I'm somebody who reads books by the Pope in bed. <laughs> I was reading a, a collection of Pope with a uh, late Pope Benedict's talks to clergy in uh, before I went to sleep, just as a devotional thing. Um, it's really good, actually. Um, they He writes little homilies, and they take about five minutes. They're really good before bed as a devotional guide. And um, I don't know whether it's because I'm writing about what it means for uh, there to be elders in the church. I'm thinking a lot about what ordination means at the moment for a paper I'm writing. But his description of his call to the priesthood and his love for Christ, I found myself weeping on. And again, it wasn't because I liked his work, right? I, I, I mean, there have been lawyers who I've read who have really liked their work. It was because of something beautiful and a pride that my brother would shown me something. When you dig into theological history, that's what we are talking about a lot of the time when we talk about the communion of the saints. What that means is they're big words that um, might not be familiar to people in our, in our churches, but it's getting at this idea that Paul or whoever wrote Hebrews is writing about when he talks about the great cloud of witnesses. Again, I don't know how much time he spent pondering that that scene, but what he's what he means is that there's this sense, um, I think that we intuitively have that that there are supporters and those who've gone before us who are alongside us, who participate with us in a race, even while we are running it. A good example of this might be for those who watch football, um, that you will often get the idea that the, the crowd is the eleventh man, or the sorry, the twelfth man on the football pitch, right? Now, that's bonkers. It's a completely meaningless statement, right? They're not the 12th man because there's, what, 60,000 of them, right? They're men and women, and they're not playing. But there's a sense in which they are alongside those who are playing and participating with them in it. And that the, those who are playing are not doing so on their own. They are being encouraged and cheered along by those who are sharing with them in that experience and are rooting them for it, uh, rooting for them in it. And I think that's partly what we see when we talk about the communion of saints is that our brothers and sisters, our family have gone before us and they are linked to us and they are now in some sense and this raises a whole load of theological questions they are in some sense participating in our right our our race with us encouraging us where does that get to the question of pneumatological unity and pneumatological catholicity which just means the the the, the universality of the church the sense that the church is everywhere and 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 is that there's one church and it's the same in Jamaica as it is in London there aren't two different churches in, in, in Moscow, Idaho, and in Moscow, Russia. There aren't two different churches. There is one church that's expressed differently. It's grounded in this idea that actually it's the Holy Spirit who's present in every place. So the, the Eastern Orthodox have a prayer that they pray at the beginning of every day, uh, a prayer to the Holy Spirit that says, Heavenly King, Comforter, Spirit of Truth, you're present everywhere and you fill everything. Treasure of blessings and giver of life, come and dwell in us. And there's a paradox there, right? Because on the one hand, you're affirming that the Holy Spirit is already present and filling me because he's present everywhere and fills everything. But what I'm praying is that I would experience his presence and become aware of it. And, and I think when we look at the church, Baptist Church in Jamaica and the Baptist Church in uh, Kingston-upon-Thames, what we're saying is the Holy Spirit is in both places. Both places are in him. And that group of believers is baptized by him into one body with one another. And that the Holy Spirit is the is the one who leads every individual church. 
when you start to look at the church as a whole like that, it changes the way that you approach a whole load of other things, um, which I think you wanted to come on and talk to in a minute. But I'm, I, I'm conscious looking at my time, and I think I may have just talked for 15 to 20 minutes straight without pausing <laughs> for breath. Well, I, I was letting you go because I, I think there's so much about what you're saying. I just You almost just need to let what you said settle and allow people's cogs to turn and consider because part of my mind goes in different directions but part of it I think is we have a much flatter view of reality and of existence than the writers of scripture did certainly we are so trained in this rationalist mindset uh, this um just the scientific worldview that shapes so much materialism shapes so much about how we see the world that we we read something like the great cloud of witnesses and we see only metaphor and we think ah oh, lovely and it's just a nice encouragement but there's something that you say i mean metaphors are truths and they describe something that is is real it's not physical but it's real and it's a reality we can all attest to and i think as you as you rightly pointed out i think every believer has that experience of meeting another believer and feeling an affinity to them and not quite being able to put your finger on why it is so they they believe in jesus maybe maybe it's a product of church history but we seem to we seem to there's that there's that old joke about the man on the bridge isn't there um and a guy comes up to him and says you know don't jump don't jump is you got anything to live for and he says well i'm a christian he says oh me too i'm a christian uh, and he says well what part what church are you from he says i'm part of the baptist church he says oh me too i'm part of the baptist church he says well, what baptist church are you it's like the the covenant of whatever date it was he says, oh me too and then they they break it down to the, until they discover they do have uh, a difference of theological or doctrinal opinion and he and he says jump die you heretic and pushes him off the bridge and i think for, for so much, much of us as christians we're trained to cons- to see only the things that divide us and there is because you say that we're we, we're one in spirit across the planet and yet the truth is when i have been on holiday and been into say a a roman catholic church it doesn't feel like i'm entering the house of another family member it feels more like i'm entering the house of another god or another religion and that experience of alienation can only fuels some of my protestant teaching and training that they are apostate and we are in the right and then they throw mud back at us etc and on it goes that we are forever trying to establish who the true church is and then you've got the the orthodox guys off to the side just sitting there comfortably going well we think we're the true church i'm not even going to enter this conversation and so talk to me a bit about this the the actual differences and how you understand that in light of what you've just said yeah that's a really great question jess and i think that is i i I mean there are you've raised a whole load of issues that I think are all really pertinent and powerful. I think there is a particular mind. First of all, I want to say I'm, I, I think there are enormous benefits from our wing with the church, right? So charismatic free churches have an enormous amount going for them, right? There is a reason why Pentecostalism is, is one of the fastest growing religious movements in history. And it's because it expresses something of what God is doing in the world. Right, and there is a proper recovery of um, personal access to Scripture, personal access to Jesus, the encouragement of, of of people exercising gifts of ministry and taking responsibility for the mission of the church themselves. With all of which are really great things in um, our wing of the church. 
and which are which historically haven't been true in other wings of the church. So uh, I don't want this to come across as me saying essentially we got everything wrong. Uh, I'm putting that up front. I also want to say personally that, um, and I, I would do this to honour our leaders, uh, I know that you probably have listeners who are not part of New Ground, but being part of New Ground is really great. Like when we went through a year of having some like four bereavements in a, in, a, in, a, in a few months, a couple of years ago, the guys who came and prayed with us and checked in on us and made sure we were okay were the guys from New Ground who uh, wanted to, to to make sure that we were all right and they were part of our, our lives. And we sat down with Dale, uh, Barlow and Philip Elwood for two and a half hours yesterday while they mentored me and Heather and how we grow leaders and stuff in our church. I mean, just unbelievably good. So all of that's really, really good. Uh, and I'm saying I'm not just as rhetorical throat clearing, but really to honour that. There's a lot that's very good about this. With all of that said, I think that evangelicals broadly and Protestants a bit less, if you go, if you zoom out even further, um, have a tendency to see differences before they see similarities. And I think it's a it's a it's a hang up hangover from the Reformation. That we, I mean, and again, this, these sound like big theological ideas, but you get this vibe in local churches, aren't there? You've been in, I mean, you're a pastor of a church. You know that there are people who turn up who are waiting to leave and go to another church as soon as you say the wrong thing, right? I mean, we've all been there. Everybody listening to this will be able to think of that person. And if they can't think of that person, the chances are you might be that person. (laughs) 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 Because... And there are people in my area, and I love them, and they're great, but they've come to my church, they leave my church, they come back, I say the wrong thing, they leave again, right? I mean, one person left over because we weren't sufficiently uh, praiseworthy of the late Queen, who I was a big fan of, but I hadn't been sufficiently effusive in my praise for her. And so they left our church and went to another church, right? I mean, there's something, there's something, to a Roman Catholic, that would be unintelligible, right, as an approach. There is something about the we see the way that we see churches, which sees differences before it sees unity and sees similarities. And so, I I want to try and resist that approach in my in myself. There are obviously are differences between the churches in the world, but the similarities or the commonalities between them are far more significant, and actually far more widespread. What we we miss them because we take them for granted. But they're things which, if you zoom out, shouldn't be taken for granted. So I'll give you a, one which is a big cause for um, the major cause of the division between uh, Christianity and everybody else. Who is Jesus? Is Jesus fully God and fully man? Every single church that you've just mentioned says yes. Everybody else, everybody else says no. Right? So when we say there are lots of divisions between churches, what we mean is we've already cut off most of humanity from this group, right? Because of what we believe about Jesus, right? Let's go but on a bit further. What do we believe about the nature of God? Is he uh, three uh, persons or not? Christians say yes. Everybody else says no, right? Should you baptize believers? If someone comes to become a Christian, leaving aside the question of babies for a minute, if someone becomes a Christian, should they get baptized? Every Christian church, with a few slightly eccentric, um, <laughs> uh, slightly eccentric denominations, would say yes. Throughout history, do we take bread and wine on Sundays? 
right? At some point, we take the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper or communion, whatever you want to call it, which is, objectively speaking, very odd, right? Because no one else in, in, in the world or in human history does it. And we do it. We all do it, right? These are things that unite us. There are certain things which we all agree on as being essentially Christian. And because we all agree upon them, we don't talk about them anymore, right? So if you go through the first thousand years of Christianity, that's what the debate is about. Who is Jesus? As Protestants now, when we look at a Roman Catholic church, for example, and I'm no doubt that Roman Catholics can be just as party partisan as we are, in terms of this, what we do is we look at it and say, well, you guys, you um, asked Mary to pray for you. We don't do that. And therefore, we are fundamentally different religions. And there's part of me which wants to go back and say, but hang on a second, you both believe that Jesus is fully God and fully man, right? You both believe that the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit are one God. You both believe that People need to uh, put their faith in Jesus Christ, and if they do, they'll be redeemed from their sins, right? You both believe that when that happens, they should get baptized and they'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. So, so remind me again why you're <laughs> remind me again about these divisions. We agree about the overwhelming majority. In fact, we agree about the big things. And the big things that we agree about are the things that we would think make you a Christian or not. So, what makes you a Christian, as opposed to, for example, a Muslim, is your attitude to Jesus most fundamentally. Why do we perceive the disagreements so acutely? I think there are, there's a historic reason for that. There is a principled reason and there is a, um, a cultural reason. The historic reason is because a lot of, we, we are still living out the drama of the Reformation. Right, so the fundamental dynamic of the Reformation is of Protestants protesting, that's why they're called Protestants, and when you start defining yourself by not being somebody else, and that's how, that's how you understand who you are, it's very difficult to then move away from that. And you see that replicated in, by the way, the Reformation was a good and important thing, and actually most of the critiques of it, if you, a Roman Catholic scholar would not be very happy about this, but I think most, me putting it this way, but I think most Protestants who read Roman Catholic documents over time see them changing at least in the way that they express themselves, to take account of a lot of the criticisms of the Reformation, right? If you compare the catechism of the Catholic Church to Calvin's Institutes, you'll find that most of Calvin's criticisms of the papacy have been conceded, right? We just can't, we just can't say that because that's not formally acceptable, but it's, in, it's an interesting point, or at least nuanced. If, for those who are interested in this, wrote an interesting paper out of this for First Things a few years ago that caused a big kerfuffle, in which he pointed it out. Um, my point is, once you start define, once you start out by defining yourself as I'm not them, that rather than with a positive identity that I am this person, and this is a pastoral issue as well, actually, it becomes very difficult to break that way of thinking. So a lot of the time, Protestants define themselves by I'm not this person, I'm not that person. What, uh, and you can see that within our churches as well, that we define ourselves against another group. Because that's historically how we started. That's where we come from. Because instead of advancing a positive vision, we advance a vision which is defined against somebody else. So that's a historic reason, right? It's part of the the, the roots of the Reformation. And is that part of part of why 
Protestantism then fractures into more and more things, is what you're saying. The reason why yeah. it began as yeah, yeah. a reaction to the Roman Church, and then suddenly it was a reaction to the German, the Germans who were against the Romans, and then it was the French or the Swiss against the Germans who were against the Romans, and then the English, and then and every then English towns have their reaction to the town down the road and protest. Oh, that's different. We're different. And I think as you're going to come on to say, it's not just so. There's something about our identity that's inherent inherently um, Protestant, and that that that's part of what gives us. Uh, a missional edge would you say or a kind of a dynamism and activity and energy so you, it, the, your strengths are also your biggest weaknesses as um as people would often say but yeah carry on with where you're going though yeah there's a zeal there we want to do it right so that's the good element of it and we're concerned for the purity of doctrine so the reformation is really a complaint about doctrine in the in the in the roman catholic church of the 16th century 15th and 16th centuries we're concerned that we want to teach things right. I mean, you could, you've got gone to, uh, I don't know when this will go out, but in the week that this is happening, there has been a two-week kerfuffle going on in American evangelicalism. And if you want to see the logical outworking of Protestantism in all of its glory and all of its flaws, American evangelicalism is, is where, where to look, right? Because then you've got all of the money. Well, and also that was a country that was set up in reaction against our country. And so there's a, a Protestant Christian spirit and a revolutionary national spirit. Right. <laughs> and and those two things are not unrelated. I mean, ask I'm assuming at some point you ought to have Andrew on to talk about 1776, right? Those two things are not unrelated. The American Revolution is an expression, to some extent, of the Puritan spirit. So that's the historical point. I think culturally... When you have people who, who in this, you see this in, in biology, when you, when you separate groups out and they develop in separate ecosystems, they develop and they begin to look different, right? That's kind of adaptation 101. And you look at our churches, our churches just look very different from other churches. I, I imagine when an Anglican walks into a Roman Catholic church, they don't feel as alienated, I'd have to ask them, because it looks kind of the same, right? It feels kind of the same. Now there will be some things that are different, but it, but it's, but it, it. You've still got a guy at the front who's in a robe, right? There's bread and wine sat out on an altar with a gold cross. There's stained glass windows or whatever, right? I'm mean, talking cliches, but you know what I mean. It's you're not going from a warehouse with flashing lights and disco music through to the Vatican, because you've got these two things, and you know, or, or from a guy who's at the front in t-shirt and jeans through to someone at the front who's in robes speaking Latin. That's just an enormous cultural difference that's basically grown up because you've split these two churches off to, to work stuff out in a way that in different ecosystems. And so they do look and feel very differently. And it takes a long time to unpick what is actually being said. I mean, so to give you an example of this, you get American English and English English. Proper English and deviant yeah. English. Yeah. yeah, the original brand and the knockoff. Right. <laughs> when you've got the knockoff, they use words differently, which can feel very alienating and can be very funny. Right? So my kids, when they first started hearing American TV, thought the idea that Americans called trousers pants. Absolutely hilarious. <laughs> Why are they always talking about their pants, Daddy? Right. And what I'm getting is that, is that what you've got there is two sets of language which have developed differently. And because they've developed differently, they are talking about the same things, right? The stuff you wear on your legs, two tubes of cloth that you wear on your legs, but in ways they're different. And because they're different from one another, there is a sense of alienation to someone who is coming from one to the other and hasn't 
taken the time to understand what's being said and what's being done. So I think when we go into a Roman Catholic church or, or Eastern Orthodox church, or even sometimes to an Anglican church, there is a, an immediate sense of cultural alienation from it because they've developed differently and they they are incarnating some of the same ideas that we're incarnating, but in a way that feels and looks very different different to us. I, 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 mean, I can't imagine what it's like for someone who's spent their whole life in the Latin Mass to come into one of our services, right? Because, and, and I do try and do that experiment because we have a lot in our area, in our area of the country, denominations are breaking down. So we have a lot of lapsed Catholics who come to us. And, and it's a really interesting thought experiment to do. If I were walking in as, a, as someone who'd grown up in a very formal theological tradition, with icons everywhere, with statues everywhere, with incense going off, and where someone at the front is wearing robes, how would I feel coming into here? Would I recognize this as Christianity? And 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 so I work hard as a, as a pastor, as a as a liturgist, to explain what I'm doing in ways that make clear the link with the rest of the church and with the with the historic church. And I think partly when we walk into so partly the reason why we feel so alienated from one another when we walk into each other's church buildings is because we've just developed differently. So when we think that we are as a point of principle dressing the pastor like everybody else. I think we need to be aware that there is a principle there. Paul talks about, you know, I become like a Jew to go to the Jews and like a Gentile to go to the Gentiles. But it's also speaking to, to a political and cultural moment that our society lives in. Right, that we're not, we might not be doing that because that's what the Bible teaches. We might be doing that because fundamentally we live in a society that's trying to iron out any sense of hierarchy and divisions. And I, I mean, so where does this pay off? I think sometimes when we think about things like things like church leadership or things like doctrinal questions or things like how do we do communion, we need to start becoming conscious that we are being formed by the culture and the values of the culture that we are in. And part of the way we do that is by asking how other parts of the church have done it through history and are doing it at the moment as a corrective to this. This is part of C.S. Lewis's idea that you need to listen to the wind of the past blowing through in order to clear out cobwebs, right? I'm misquoting him. He's in Reflections on the Psalms. But it's why you should read old books, Lewis says. So this is part of why we should read old books. And by old books, I mean why we should ask, how did the church deal with this thing? How did they do communion in the first millennia? What is, if we're doing it differently, aren't we doing it differently because we are right? Because it doesn't matter how it's done. So there are two options. It doesn't matter or because they were doing it wrong and we've reformed it. Or are we doing it this way because we are wrong and we have been formed by our cultural moment that we don't think anything's going on? You know, when one thinks about is Christ really present in the Eucharist? Is Christ really present when you take communion? What do you think is going on at communion? Well, it's funny you mentioned communion because we, we actually just had this um, conversation the other day. We have a, a lecturer in our church who's one of her big passions is communion. And so we're having this conversation about how do we, because I think one of the, the core aspects of our types of churches is that we are trying to think carefully as contextual about contextualization we're trying to think carefully as missionaries and one of my big critiques coming from a non-christian background was that i would as a non-christian go into churches and i just feel like all of the symbols all of the language just was communicating to a different era in history that wasn't mine and therefore it, it just reinforces the fact this doesn't have any relevance for me and so our church is you know the reason why we we, we run all of our questions of application and practice through that lens of 
does it make sense to people outside the church or how do we communicate this to people in our culture so that's a, a good thing but then you're right so but our job as a missionary is not just to meet people where they're at it's to help take them to where would be a better place for them to be and if that means introducing them to codes and symbols and you know we all have codes and symbols that we acknowledge and respect but some of them are going to be have fuller meaning and have more um, sanctifying power to them so to speak then I think our job as pastors is to not just speak the language of the street um, but also to help the street speak the language of the church and understand uh, speak the language of the spirit and through the ages I think the challenge is we all read the Bible through the lens of our own culture and our own preferences, of course. But when we talk about when we talk about going back into trying to build and be a New Testament like church, well, in our in our maybe it's a romantic mind, but in our romantic mind and picture of the early church, they were just like us. They they met in houses. There wasn't any gowns. There wasn't any formality. They they had love feasts where people were getting drunk. So we can imagine, oh, this is just a, a kind of a just a community feast and they're enjoying communion as part of it. It feels so much more like the way we approach our services, say. And maybe that's just eisegesis, reading ourselves into the text. Um, it feels so much more like that than it does like the eastern orthodox branch of church that claims oh we're the original church and how we do it's right and icons etc that feels so culturally contingent and so this, how do you how do you help because as crosstons as you said we're rightly concerned with what's the right way to do it what's the right way to do things and yet we read the new testament and think well we're right because look they just met in houses and we're basically an informal group and i'm sure they would have worn jeans but anyway, so where, what some of your reflections on, on all of that? These are great questions. And um, I want to take a step back from, from, from that for a second, okay? Um, because I, I'm conscious that, 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 that I think that there is a, I mean, this is a huge conversation, but there is a slightly unhelpful paradigm that I just want us to avoid when we're talking about them. I think that we that we talk as if we read the Bible and we try and work out what it's saying and then we do that, right? As if we're deciding what the right thing to do is. I don't think that is what St. Paul says we should do and it's not what any other Christian group has done through history. Whoa, that's a big statement. <laughs> and, it, and it's a function of modernity. What I think we're trying to do when we read the Bible as a church and when we pray about what we're doing is listen to the Holy Spirit interpreting the scriptures and being led by him so this comes back to the question of who is the head of the church are the elders the head of the church is the pope the head of the church no the holy spirit is well christ is the head of the church through uh, ministering through his holy spirit so when we are deciding what to do we are listening to the voice of the holy spirit within christian theology we're listening to the voice of the holy spirit and he is leading us so we're doing it not because we've read the text and we think this is the right way to read the manual that's a very modernist way of doing it. We are making a supernatural claim that when we are listening, when we are praying, when we are reading, we are listening to the voice of God. So this is, I mean, this grows out of um, John 16. When he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it's from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That's why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. And St. Paul takes this up in terms of saying we have the mind of Christ because we are baptised by the Spirit into one body in, in 1 Corinthians. 
what we are doing when we make doctrinal determinations, for example, we are saying we this is how we believe the spirit is speaking about this issue and the spirit is leading and guiding the church. In, in, in some sense, we believe that about the whole world, right? That's the doctrine of providence, is that the spirit is leading and guiding the whole world. But Jesus says the spirit is particularly given to the church and the spirit particularly leads and guides the church. That is why determinations about things like, for example, the Trinity in Nicaea and Constantinople are not simply human determinations interpreting a text. They are almost acts of prophetic discernment. They are about the church as a whole having listened to the Holy Spirit and, and responding to what he says. Now, this might feel like a little bit, I've got a little bit away from what you were asking, which is about genes in worship, right? And other stuff like that. Isn't, it, isn't the New Testament really like our churches? Partly, yes. There is, a, there is an obvious point there, right? which is that if you go right back to the beginning of the process before anything's become formalised or before things have become formalised, they are less formal. Absolutely. What I want to suggest that we begin the process by doing is having a posture which says that, that accepts, I think, the, the kind of minimal claim that when church leaders are making decisions, if they are making decisions well, they are doing so by listening to the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is leading his church. If we accept that is true for us, and we believe that that has also been what everybody else has been doing, then when we look at the approaches of the churches through history to various issues, like, for example, the Trinity, what we're doing is listening for what the Holy Spirit was speaking to them. So we have now thousands of years, the testimony of our brothers and sisters about how they their acts of prophetic discernment. How did they understand the Holy Spirit was guiding them to interpret the text, for example, on questions like the eternal subordination of the Son, which was a big theological kerfuffle that came up a few years ago, on things like, is Jesus fully man and fully God? It's not simply that we have a text and we keep reinterpreting that text. It's that the Holy Spirit has spoken to the church and the church has determined the right way to interpret that text. What does that have to do with any of the questions you ask me? Well, I think what it means is that you start to have a different posture towards the church as a whole. So it's, it's, it, you move from saying, I am coming to this, we are coming to this as a local congregation, and trying to look at a text that exists in, in freely from everything else and determine what we should do from it. Instead, we're saying, I'm coming to a text which has been interpreted by its author over and over and over again to his people. And I, of course, they might have made a mistake listening to him, but I am at least interested in what they thought he was saying. And I'm, and I'm listening with humility that recognises if this has been the way that this text has been interpreted, or at least this is the way that people have understood the Holy Spirit to be interpreting this text across the world and across millennia, and I think that all of those Christians have heard wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. No, I might be right. It starts to raise a question, doesn't it? I mean, if you think about it using the analogy of a radio set, for example, imagine that the Holy Spirit speaks to the church through the scriptures about the way that the Christian life should be lived in community and worship should happen. And that we have thousands of years of testimony as to what he's saying about issues. Lots of people have listened to this broadcast. Now, they've listened imperfectly. All of their receivers are slightly broken because we're sinful right so we've listened imperfectly but over time you get the the accretion of all of these different understandings of what the holy spirit was saying you will build up a very a pretty good and a pretty authoritative understanding of what the original message was right? the way that that text should be read 
Now, you can come in and say, look, you've all heard wrong. You've all interpreted that message wrong. But I suppose my the movement of my thought has been to say, have I really is that really plausible? Right. And what does it say about the way that the Holy Spirit leads the church if it is? But again, go back to my being a barrister. Well, you have a preponderance of witnesses who all testify that the, the, someone said something. You start to think they did say it. Right. What does that mean for the way that we interpret scripture and how we handle scripture? I think what it means is that we need to be, we need to come to the rest of the church's testimony with curiosity and with humility. And we need to we need to learn church history. We need to. And this isn't every Christian, by the way. This is a job for elders and apostles in denominations. Right. The, the radical Protestant groups ought to have people who are set aside partly. To, 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 to get into this stuff. Not because church history matters for its own sake, but because the Holy Spirit matters who is speaking to the church. So, I mean, let, let me just come in because I think I have a, a few thoughts. And I'm aware, I'm conscious of time, so we are running out of time. But there's a few kind of things that might just be worth to get your thoughts on, if you like, implications on what you're saying. Firstly, I can see that perhaps there's an issue when we talk about authority that we sometimes would say Protestants place the scripture as the only authority sola scriptura whereas the roman catholics place the infallible magisterium of the church as having a greater authority than scripture but actually what you're saying is no there's a there's a greater authority than both of those two things and that's the spirit himself as the one who enables the churches throughout history to interpret and understand the, the scriptures okay so i want to come back on that okay i want to come back on that i am saying that there is a so I think when Protestants say scripture is a supreme authority, it's the only infallible authority, and I agree with that, right? I think when we say that, what we then miss is, what we mean is, and I am the proper interpreter of scripture, right? So the individual is the proper interpreter of scripture, or my church is the proper interpreter of scripture, in isolation from everybody else. I think actually there are two phases to some to a, to a, to an authority. There is the authority that's inherent in the thing itself, and there is the authoritative interpreter of it. And what I am definitively saying, because I think this is what St Paul says, and it's certainly what Calvin and the reformers would have said, right? This is not a minority report. This is this is this was the foundations of the Reformation. If you read Calvin, is that. We don't reinterpret scripture ourselves. We interpret scripture in line with the tradition of the church. We interpret it in line with the way the Holy Spirit spoke to the church. So there is a there is one authoritative text that is um, infallible and the only infallible source for theology. But the way of reading that text is not individualistic or even congregational. It is in, in the communion of the saints throughout history under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Right. So there's this tradition one and tradition two theory, right, that the Roman Catholics have this idea that that, that you have a, a source of oral traditions that continues in the church alongside the scriptures. And Protestants want to say that might be right, but oral traditions over centuries get corrupted. And so we need to test every oral tradition by reference to scripture. That's why we my solo scripture. It doesn't mean it's the only authority. It means it's the only infallible authority, the one you test everything else by. Right. 
No, that's good. I mean, I'd, I'd be interested to know where the Orthodox Church differs from us then, in uh, because obviously it has a very high regard of church or church authority and, and tradition. So Luther had long discussions with the Orthodox Church about whether he could just join the whether the the, the proper direction for the Reformation was to join the, was to join Orthodoxy. There was a whole succession of letters. I mean, Gavin Orland. I know you're a fan of Gavin Orland. He has a video on his website um, talking about um, his YouTube channel talking about this, which I encourage people to check out. Right? It doesn't go well, right? Now, partly it doesn't go well because, and I want to say this with the with the will in the world, best will in the world. Luther was a genius, but he was also a complete jerk. <laughs> right? <laughs> It was impossible to work with him, right? There's a famous story where he, he goes to, uh, Zwingli meets him, and they want to argue about the proper means of the Lord's Supper. And Luther has already written across the table underneath uh, the tablecloth in chalk, uh, Hocus corpus meum, which is, this is my body from the Vulgate, the Latin translation of the Bible. And Zwingli gets halfway through what he thinks they've gone to, to bash out on a, a theological issue. Luther whips the tablecloth off and is like, look, it says it there. <laughs> Right, that's what it says in scripture. Get out, <laughs> right? You know, I'm not going to name any names. We can all think of contemporary Christians who are a bit like that. There's there's, a, there's an element of genius about you, and also it is wholly unsurprising that no one is able to work with you for more than five years, right? So there is a discussion between them. Ultimately, it falls down on Luther's one, Luther's articulation of justification by faith. And so they didn't have the clarity that Luther had, and they felt quite uncomfortable with the way he was formulating stuff. And in the end, they said, "Look, can you just stop writing to us?" Stop sending us offensive letters in German. Right? It's just not, <laughs> it's not gonna <laughs> They ghosted him. All right, well I I mean I would I would perhaps have another conversation because I, was, I would like to learn a lot more about the uh, Orthodox Church, particularly since it seems that many people are um drawn to so there is some very attractive aspects of the Orthodox Church that people seem to be drawing out at the moment. I think I think so one thing I would say sorry to talk over you, but I think one thing I would say is that orthodoxy sometimes provides a really neat way round problems that seem intractable in Western Christianity. So right, it's like when you bring in, and you know, if you, you, you again, you've had this experience in churches probably or in families where you have two people having a massive argument and they can't seem to make any progress. And you bring someone in from completely outside the situation and they say, have you thought about looking at it this way instead? And I think that is the value of orthodoxy for, 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 for Western Christianity, actually. Is, it's, not, it's not that they're right about everything. And there is an enormous amount of um, ethnic uh, tribalism in orthodoxy. There is, uh, I think, a real problem with formalism. They, they're not missional in the way that they were missional at one point, right? They, they literally created Slavic as a language in order to translate the scriptures and take them to the Slavs. Like St. Melodius and St. Cyril did that in the first millennia. They were a missionary church, not anymore. And, and that's partly because of persecution. They lived under communism and under Islam for years. There's a stability about orthodoxy that I think is really good and we could learn from. And there's a reverence for the past that I think we could learn from. Um, but there's also a good deal of sectarianism. If you're interested in orthodoxy or anyone listening to this is interested in orthodoxy, the absolute classic place to start is very easy because it's written by an Englishman. So it's written with an English mindset. It's not translated from Russian. Is Timothy Ware's The Orthodox Church. The Penguin book is very easy. All right, we'll put that in the description for today. Phil, I love your brain. I love how much you know. I just want to sit and listen and learn. I have one more question and then we'll uh, we'll, wrap, we'll wrap things up because I'm conscious of time. Um, my my question, I guess, and maybe, you know, you mentioned Gavin Ortland. He talks about A doctrines and B doctrines and the importance of doing theological triage to help discern things. But you made this comment that 
We look for consensus and that helps us dis- decide what the Spirit's saying, which, of course, on, if you like, issues that were settled by the Nicene Creed or the Council of Nicaea, you think, well, yeah, those are the kind of essential doctrines of Christian faith. And if you deviate from that, you're you're called a heretic, <laughs> among other things. Um, but if you said that the Spirit is at work providentially leading the world as well as in the church leading the church, and so therefore we look in large part for consensus and we can listen to what the Spirit's doing around us in culture and in the world as well. And on these big doctrine issues that have been established and settled as the boundary markers of Christian faith, we understand that. But a lot of the the, the squabbles and the challenges come some of them over major issues, like you mentioned salvation by faith. You know, that's not a people will be listening to this going, I'm not a Roman Catholic because they deny the gospel. How do I get saved? Is how some people would say, um, hear this or, or respond rather. But I'm thinking of some of the kind of just the practical culture wars issues to do with men and women in the church, or even if the church for centuries has had a consensus that marriage is, is a sacred union between a man and woman, but then some churches, an increasing number of churches, may say, and in fact, you know, noises were made by the Roman Catholic Church recently that confused people. If the if other churches start to say, Oh no, we can we can actually bless um, and see sacramental value in um, same-sex unions. What happens when the consensus tips? Is that you just say, well, that's now the spirits led us in that direction? What What are some of the your comments on the boundary markers of this? Yeah, great question. I think um, so. First thing to say is that isn't what the Roman Catholic Church says, right? That is the way it was reported in. All they said was there was conf- they've they've introduced some degree of confusion. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah. it's important to say that because I don't want, I don't want people to be shaken in their faith, right? Because it because it can you know even if we're not Roman Catholics, you don't have a. a, a dog in that fight and said okay the world's biggest christian denomination indicating it's changing its mind about something can can knock our confidence right and i can speak for myself that's certainly the case for me it's important that everyone knows that the document in question affirmed categorically that that there's no space for blessing same-sex unions as marriages or same-sex unions in the in the same sense as marriages or anything like that the the confusion came because what happens if people approach someone at, for example, a shrine and ask a priest to bless them there and he doesn't have time to go into their background, right? Because the Western media has a vested interest in churches becoming more liberal, that is immediately reported as this is a move in a liberal direction. I don't actually know a Catholic scholar who reads the document in that way. So I'm I'm making that point really as a general point just about scepticism about the reporting of religion in the media, right? What happens if consensus changes? That's a really interesting question. I think partly we need to have a certain amount of perspective that, that this is why the past is important. It also means that we need to have as leaders, this is not individual Christians, this is why it's really important to be in a church with a good leadership, church, good church leadership. And it's important for that church leadership to be in fellowship with other churches and other leaders. It's important for us to have an eye as a movement on what the church has believed about stuff through history and actually what is going on in the world as a whole. Not just what's going on in England, for example. So is the global church moving on questions of sexuality? No, not really. The church in China definitely isn't. Church in Africa isn't. Church in America, the bits which are dying are. The bits which have got fewer people than they had 10 years ago are. In England, the Anglican denomination, which has got catastrophically declining numbers in its liberal wing, not in its conservative wing, is. The Roman Catholic Church isn't. Well, we get this idea in our heads that something is changing and actually isn't. And partly that is where 
movements and denominations need to have people whose job it is to be aware not only of the Christian world as it is now, right, and to listen to our brothers and sisters in Africa, in, in the majority Christian world, in Asia. There is a certain amount of imperialism, right? I'm going to get myself into trouble now. Liberal Western Christianity is a colonialist imperialist project which is uninterested in the voice of the majority world. Drops mic, leaves Zoom room. Love that. <laughs> I saw this in the Baptist Union, right? We, we're on a journey as a church. We're still part of the Baptist Union. We've just joined New Ground. That's where our centre of gravity is now. But when we're still outside New Ground, I was working in the Baptist Union. There is a movement within the Baptist Union to want to allow pastors to enter into same-sex relationships. It is a tiny minority, but a, a very well-organised minority. It is a minority which will agitate for racial justice until a black pastor and black majority pastors try and organise to stop to maintain orthodox sexual standards in the church at which point they have no interest in black voices whatsoever, right? It is openly, I would suggest, colonialist and racist. And we need to be careful that our theology isn't entirely formed by listening to the voices of white Western liberals, right? Read Augustine, he was ministering in Africa. Listen to the voices of black Pentecostals in Africa. Listen to the voices of Chinese, Chinese Roman Catholics, right? There is a diversity here, which is part of God's ordained plan for the church that you have access to and that we need to listen to but if you have millennia of change in the way that scripture was being read all over the church on a particular issue i think you would find that we ought to be open to the idea that that is the way that the spirit's moving actually what you'd find is that, that would be the way we read the bible already anyway the, the 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 problem of not being rooted in history so to turn the point around the problem in not being rooted in a consensus view is that you are very unstable you are open every time there is a cultural shift in the way that scripture is being read. You're open to changing your mind. Whereas if you're looking at saying to take with men and women in leadership, take the whole way that eldership is framed. This is a massive issue that I'm writing about at the moment. Up until 100 years ago, eldership was discussed almost exclusively in terms of sacramental leadership amongst as a, as a, as a single unit amongst a diversity of leaders within the church. I picked up Tom Schreiner's book on uh, 1 Timothy 2 and women and men in the church. It's a brilliant, masterful book of historical critical scholarship. He doesn't mention, the authors that, him and um, Kostenberger, don't mention sacraments or ordination once. Mm. Yeah, I recently read that and observed that as well, yeah. I'm not criticising Tom. He's a far brighter man than me. It is striking, right, and you can make the same point about the egalitarian literature on this. The way that this, the way that the office of elder was viewed, literally from the second century at least, if not actually in Paul, I think it is viewed sacramentally in Paul, and in Jesus's work in the Gospels, and was viewed by the church as a whole across the Reformed. So you read Calvin, it's treated as part of the sacraments, or at least under the heading of the sacraments. Read Aquinas, it's treated under the heading of the sacraments. Read Augustine, it's treated under the heading of the sacraments. Read P.T. Forsyth, the free church theologian from nineteen hundred. It's treated under the heading of the sacraments. And yet, somehow, within the space of 100 years, we're having blazing rows without any reference to the way that the, the historic church have viewed this issue at all. And, and I would just gently ask, has it been productive? <laughs> Do we feel like we've made any progress at all? Right? We junked the way that the church viewed this issue as a result, presumably, of the move towards egalitarianism and democracy and a flattening out of the church. 
and an unwillingness amongst evangelicals to see to to accord any sort of sense of sacramental leadership. And what's happened is we've ended up in a complete rut, throwing rocks at each other, right? With women in church life justly angry, because we've started to reframe what was supposed to be a sacramental re uh, representative relationship between the elder as one of the leaders and Christ. So the elder is ministering Christ in persona Christi to the church amongst a group of other leaders, which included women. Right. So the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church used to have orders of deaconesses. Right. Ministering in the church as part of that. We've ended up with John Piper, who I have enormous respect for, saying that women can't give directions at traffic lights. How did that happen? Right. A big part is we got disconnected from the way that the rest of the church has thought about these issues. And what ended up was pastoral disasters and perhaps theology. <laughs> in which authority is rooted in gender rather than in the promise of Christ to be present in certain things. But we can talk about the sacraments on another occasion, Jess. But this is what happens. This is what happens. That's my point. Is when you cut yourself off, you might think you either become extreme to the right. I mean, I hate the words right and left. When you cut yourself but I'm going to use them here. When you cut yourself off from the historic and global roots of Christianity and the way that the Spirit has led the exegesis of Scripture, you end up either oppressively conservative or ludicrously liberal. What you lose is the genius of the Spirit in the Scriptures. That is a great quote almost to just leave it on. You become oppressively conservative or ludicrously liberal unless you listen to the voice of the spirit through history through the, in the church um phil what you've just touched on there is huge and i know there's going to be much more conversations that we many more conversations that we could have around related issues i've got so much respect for how widely you seem to read the you know you've sent me in the past books and tracts by popes and blogs by Eastern Orthodox, you know, commentators and stuff. I really appreciate what you're bringing to us. Uh, I'm so, so grateful. Um, and thanks for being with us today. Not at all. I think um, if your listeners are interested in digging into some of these issues and, and understanding how they can still be Protestant as well, whilst having reverence for this, start with Gavin Ortland's work. His work on Augustine and creation is really just wonderful. Uh, particularly for anybody who's wrestling with the issue of evolution, how the ancient church read it. By the way, the ancient church, Augustine was not Ken Ham, <laughs> right? Don't let anyone tell you he was. Watch, Ken, watch, watch Gavin Ortland's YouTube channel, read his books. It's a really good way into this stuff. And if you're interested in Eastern Orthodoxy, do pick up that book, Timothy Wears the Orthodox Church. It's just a fascinating insight, actually, into the most beautiful bit of it is his description of the perseverance of the church under hundreds of years of persecution. And I think as the church in the West gets ready for persecution, honouring and learning from our brothers in the East who had to live under the rule of Islam and then under the rule of militant communism is a really good place to start. Because there are some things that we criticise them for about their traditionalism and stuff, which actually help the faith to survive in the face of a hateful antichrist uh, government that tried to stamp Christianity out. And the remarkable thing about orthodoxy is not all of the criticism we can say, but the remarkable thing is that it's here at all, actually, when you read the story. And if you're interested in Roman Catholicism, start with uh, Pope Benedict's Jesus of Nazareth. Wow, wasn't that good? It was so good. I told you there was some deep waters ahead. Deep waters, but hopefully not choppy waters. They were brilliant. All right, enough of the water metaphors. There's so much in there that I absolutely loved. 
If you appreciated what Phil had to say, don't forget to like and subscribe or get in touch with us. Send me an email at podcast at newgroundchurches.org. I'd love to hear what you thought. In a few weeks' time, we've got the wonderful Lex Lazidas coming on the podcast to talk to us a little bit more about church history and the work of the Holy Spirit throughout the ages. I'm really looking forward to bringing that one to you. For now, from me, from all of us at the New Ground podcast, thanks for being with us. We look forward to being together again soon in the not too distant future. God bless you. Stay well and keep pursuing Jesus with everything you have. Bye bye.